Jill Hopkins here. It's a great, beautiful uh, Peace Prize Thursday. We're solving all the world's problems before 10 o'clock. That's exactly right. So let's go ahead and solve some more of those problems right now. Founded and established for and by post-incarcerated and marginalized black people in Chicago, Equity and Transformation strives to uplift the faces, voices, and power of the vast disenfranchised and excluded black workforce in the city of Chicago. They organize with individuals that operate outside of the formal economy. They are child care providers, the bucket boys that we pass on the way to the train every day, the bootleg DVD man or the woman at your local barbershop, the person selling loose cigarettes two for a dollar in front of the local liquor store, the trans and cisgendered commercial sex workers in our community. They are survivors. They are hip-hop. They are jazz. They are the artists. They are musicians. They are the hustlers that are the heartbeat of every inner-city community in the United States. As the original gig workers, they work without the legal protections of formal employment. Their survival on the margins holds critical lessons for transforming the economy to one that is inclusive, just, and equitable. I got a chance to speak with Richard Wallace, who is the founder of Equity and Transformation, about the initiative and their upcoming launch event. This is That Conversation. Equity and Transformation is a non-for-profit, community-led organization whose mission is to build social and economic equity with black Chicagoans engaged in the informal economy. Joining me in studio to talk about the endeavor is Mr. Richard Wallace, a.k.a. Epic. Hey, Chicago. How y'all doing? Thanks it's, for having it's me, It's been Jesse. a while, man. It's been a while, and you stay yeah. busy. I don't get tired. <laughs> Good, because we need folks like you making moves. Yeah. So before we jump into what this organization is all about and, and what it's trying to achieve here in the city, let's talk about you and how you began your career as an activist within the city. As you know, like I, I started really heavy in, in the hip-hop community. I think it's just a, it's a, it's a merging of my, my political views uh, and hip-hop uh, that propelled me into organizing. 2013, 2014 was an interesting time for all of us. We had a number of murders in the city of Chicago. Um, we had to take it outside. And then, like, our crowd and our fan base in hip-hop was, like, they were active in the hip-hop way. Like, they come to shows and this, that, and the other. But when it came to, like, cut up and, and protest, they weren't as present. So uh, that's when I decided to get off into organizing. I went to Roosevelt University, went back to school studied sociology, fell in love with sociology. For me, sociology was key because, like, I came up, I'm post-incarcerated. I spent two and a half years in the joint. Um, I came out, you know, I'm dead sober. I've been sober since uh, since 06. And I was politicized early on. Like, my pops used to give me books like Souls of Black Folk and all of that kind of stuff. He planted seeds um, that, you know, I ignored for a number of years, got into hip-hop. Hip-hop was great to me. And then I began to kind of use sociology to pick apart my life and identify how I was able to move into specific spaces and get back into college and and understanding my blackness, right? Like the tropes and the masks that I've worn historically. Um, like why was I, I tried to be a goon for a few years. That didn't work. I was horrible. I was horrible <laughs> at it. You know what I mean? Like, like savagery just wasn't for me. I like punch somebody and cry about it, you know? Um, I was never good at that, you know what I mean? And then I tried to be, you know, I tried to wear all of the different masks and I tried to put on a business suit and and, and try to be that person and it didn't fit, you know. Um, Why, if I may ask, did you find yourself trying on different masks 
Why? It's like, I mean, I think for one, it's societal pressure, right? I think in, in the beginning when I was younger, you know, that's what we were raised with. You know, you look on TV and it was like Busy Bone, Pac. You know, I'm from that era, you know, uh, 80s baby. Um, so it was like my blackness was was it was it defined for me before I even had a chance to, you know what I mean, I, I pick one by myself, you know. So I got into hip-hop and it was like, um, and, and also I'm really happy about the era of hip-hop that I came up in, 2008 to 2013. You had like some of the freest expressions of like black, you know what I'm saying? Artists, right? You had like the cool kids rocking Mikey Rocks, rocking skinny jeans, you know, spank rock out of Baltimore. There's there's the spitting over house and and uh, I don't even know what you, like bounce beats or whatever. You had um, Danny Brown. You had Das Racist. You had like a whole bunch of kids that were just like pushing the culture forward, right? And before that, hip hop was very much like Carhartt, Timberlands. Champion hoodie, you know what Baggy I'm saying? Like, <laughs> and then, you know, Kanye flipped the collar, you know what I'm saying? And it was just a whole host. And then you had Lupe and a lot of just, like, interesting artists, MIA, and people that are just talking politically. But then also, like, when you see them, they were extremely revolutionary in the way they presented themselves, you know? So that was dope, yeah. As somebody who's been a student of the game for as long as you have, you obviously know the different subgenres that exist within hip hop, right? Yeah. And the many subcultures that are part of it. What did you make of the period of around 2010, 11, 12, when the very culture that you yourself are using as a platform to push this message of solidarity and yeah. liberation was being essentially scapegoated for some of the troubles that exist in the city of Chicago. I'm specifically referring to Chief Keef yeah, the and, drill and, movement. and the drill movement that was getting really railroaded as part of the problem. Right. So I was on a panel discussion with Boots Riley. He was on um, the show not too long ago. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and he, he expressed it in like the most clearest way. The question that was posed to him was like, how come you think, like, why do you think that like, political hip-hop isn't, like, played more on TV and doesn't have the same amount of, like, cachet or whatever or on the radio. Um, and he said that because what we're preaching about doesn't relate specifically to the material conditions that they go home to meet. When, when, when somebody put out a track in the early 90s about bagging up dope and, and getting, you know, splitting it down and selling a dime or whatever, he's like, that's something someone, can re someone poor in the community could actually do. So when we're rapping about things that are tangible, Right. Revolution is something that's very distant. And we're living in a world of like immediate gratification. Right. So when I think about the drill movement, it was very reflective of the conditions in Chicago at that time. Like people were drilling. Right. It was so like when people see the news and the news says there was six bodies this summer and Chief Keith says there were six bodies this summer. Right. There's like a difference. Right. He's just broadcasting the media and it. The, the, the things that he's seen in his community through his own platform, and the news does the same thing. But it's looked at differently, like, oh, Chief Keefe, is, he's part of the problem. It's like, no, he's, that's, he's no different than a news anchor that, that's reporting, right? They're, they're the same, same thing. Yeah. So he's just giving a reflection or, or kind of like a, a look into the community. You are listening to Vocalo Radio. I'm Jesse Menendez. My in-studio guest is Richard Wallace. We are talking about equity and transformation. Early on, I knew you as a workers' rights advocate. Yeah. And you were quite literally the first person you've contributed to this show before. You were quite literally the first person I ever used the phrase economic violence. Yeah. 
And I remember you broke it down so articulately that I was like, yo, I had never even considered any of these things that you're talking about as to why our communities are, in some cases, the way they are and depleted of resources. So if you will talk about economic violence and how that coincides with your steps in activism. Yeah, so I can talk about present moment, right? Like I'm currently focused real heavily on West Garfield Park. West Garfield Park is also the location of the COP Academy that they plan to build, right? So as of October 8th, um, 2018, there's been 419 homicides in Chicago. 85% of the homicides were caused by gunshots. 75% of all Chicago homicide victims are black. The majority of the homicides took place in three neighborhoods. That's Austin, Garfield Park, and Inglewood. Each is over 80% black, right? Now let's take a, let's talk about the numbers. This is economy, right? The per capita income in Austin is sixteen thousand dollars. We'll put it there, right? Garfield Park is ten thousand nine hundred and fifty-one dollars. Inglewood is twelve thousand. They're all nearly twenty thousand dollars below the average per capita income in Chicago of tw- of thirty-four thousand. So you put anybody in those situations, right? Where there's high murder, right? There's high crime, right? There's very little access to economy, right? They closed 50 schools, right? Um, there's, there's no form of employment, right? And then you create conditions where people have to provide for themselves, right? And I always say that, like, people can't survive. Like, you can't buy groceries on hope. You know what I mean? And our people historically have never really had access to economy, right? So this, is, this, this stems back to, like, the slave trade, right? First, we were slaves, so we couldn't acquire a full, a full wage or, or the competitive wage. Then you move to the 1940s and you have the National Labor Relationships Act. That is when the middle class was born. You get minimum wage. You get unionism. You get all of those things, those union jobs that really created and, and, um, and, and cemented the middle class in the, in the U.S., right? But at the same time, they excluded agricultural workers. And 75% of the agricultural workforce was black, right? So you, you're talking about so tip workers, people that were, that were um, doing, providing child care and home services. None of those folks could unionize, right? So, then, so again, in the 1940s, you then push our people back again. And then in comes, like, the, you know, um, the prison industrial complex, et cetera, et cetera, right? So now you've got folks that are in communities that have no access to, to economy, and on top of that, you walk into the door of a, of, a, of a McDonald's and they're like, we're doing a background check and a drug test. Right. It's harder to get a job at McDonald's. Right. <laughs> you know, so that's what economic violence means to me. It's like housing, education and employment. Right. If you look at those numbers and, and any of the areas in the city of Chicago, I will show you areas with high crime. Right. If those numbers are not competitive with Wicker, with Wicker Park, with uh, with uh, Ravenswood, uh, you know, the other the other kind of well off communities, Lincoln Park. There we go. Um, then I'll show you high rates of, uh, of violence. And it's, it's definitely an indicator of that. You are listening to Vocalo Radio. I'm Jesse Menendez. My in-studio guest is Richard Wallace. We are talking about equity and transformation. So let's move into that specifically. Tell me about how the idea for this organization came about and what equity and transformation mean to you. I like those words, equity and transformation. I think those things mean a lot. But the end goal was like I started with the word eat, right? So <laughs> one of the shorties, shorties that I was organizing with, he was like, uh, you know, I seen him on the corner again. And I was like, oh, well, you know, I want to talk. I always chat with him. And he's like, look, you know, Unc, they call me Unc. I'm just trying to eat. And it was like, there's nothing I could say to him at that point. You know what I'm saying? Like, what do I say? I sounded like, I can buy you a burger today. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But what am I going to do for tomorrow and the next day and the next day and for your family? So that's how the name kind of was spawned. Um, I was brought into a fellowship called the Atlantic Fellows for Racial Equity. 
in it, I kind of depicted um, what it was that I want to produce for the city of Chicago. And then they, they assisted with me, assisted me in developing that project and that initiative. And it turned out to be uh, an organization. Right. And that organization is centered in organizing. Uh, I would like to say the hustler. Right. Um, there's a number of negative tropes that go along with that. But that also plays a lot of that is, is definitely rooted in anti-black racism. We've been hustling since we got here. You know, um, and it's not like, oh, we're trying to get over. It's like, no, we're just trying to get by. And the goal of EAT is to harness the voice of uh, marginalized black folks in Chicago um, to really play a large role, a leading role in, in our democracy. Too often, the solutions are coming from either white folks who have no engagement with our people or like black folks that are like in the educational field, right, that have very little connection with the community. I'm like, so what it would look like to see people that are engaged in this work, right, in survival, leading the development of policies that will produce solutions for their issues. So that is the goal, uh, ultimately, of Equity and Transformation Eat. You mentioned organizing with the hustlers. Let's unpack that. These are the individuals who you believe operate outside of the formal economy. So what is this economy that exists on the fringe? One of the, the people that I think really brought me to the, the conclusion that this is what I wanted to do was Eric Garner. Um, selling Lucy's? Selling loose squares. If he had the money to own his store, could have sold those cigarettes legally. Alton Sterling, selling bootleg DVDs out in front of a liquor store. They all fulfill a need, right? Like people don't have enough money to, to buy a whole pack of squares, right? There's a demand there, right? So that I think it's genius to create that, you know, to, to create that, right? Then Alton Sterling, like people don't have $30 to go to the movies to go see Wakanda, right? Mm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like the bootleg man serves a purpose, right? And we're seeing these people get, get slaughtered. So it's like, okay, in my mind, it was like, okay, Eric Garner killed while selling loose cigarettes, choked out on camera for the whole entire world to see. How often does this occurrence happen where people are engaged in the informal economy as a means of survival? And what, what's happened to the occupations that exist in the informal economy, right? So don't want to lose y'all, but like, look, so bootlegging alcohol once was a central ingredient of the informal economy. Everybody was doing it. I mean, the Kennedys got rich off of it. When it moves and it transitions into formal, the people who were engaged in the occupation in the informal, specifically black folks, don't retain the position when it gets into the formal. It's often a means of, of, of affordability, right? So now we're looking at the marijuana legalization in the U.S., right? Well, well, in Chicago, right? In Illinois. We all probably know dozens of brothers is locked up right now for selling marijuana, just for having a roach in the car, you know? And those that don't know what a roach is, Google <laughs> right? Um, you know, so, so, so how are those folks going to be impacted when marijuana legalization happens? Well, we'll actually create avenues through which uh, the people who are most affected by it will be able to profit off of it. And how do we ensure that their voice is included in that dialogue? What's the obstacle involved with organizing these individuals, those who have largely gone unnoticed, but also seen as illegitimate business people? One of the key pieces, I think, for us as uh, people in Chicago and the organization EAT is to transform the narrative of engagement from criminality to survivability. The public in Chicago has to see these shorties, see these adults, see these elders as surviving opposed to being criminal. 
right? Because this criminalization is like, what was it, the name of the woman who sold, who called the police because the, the the young girl was out there selling water, right? Or they're calling they're calling the police because they're having a they're having a party in in, in California, whatever, you know, barbecue Becky, barbecue Becky, right? So it's it's about transforming the narrative. Like we have to shift the narrative from criminal to survivability. And that's part of a cultural process, part of a cultural program to begin to build that narrative from the ground up. Who needs to start recognizing this demographic? The city of Chicago. You look at West Garfield Park, 81% of young African-American men in West Garfield Park are unemployed. Everybody should be at pause with that. And when you say 81% of this population is detached from the system that allows you to eat, that system has to change. And then in equity and transformation, what we say is that those people, that 81%, needs to lead the fight to change that system because they're the ones who are most affected. That's, I hope that answers the question. Yeah. Absolutely. Congratulations, my man. Continue Thank success. Thank, Thank you, you for making time. Thank you.